Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, May 26th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Ron DeSantis announced his bid for the GOP nomination this past Wednesday night on Twitter. The night was fraught with technical difficulties, but at least it's official. The Florida governor is in the race, joining a crowded field that now also includes Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Also, the debt ceiling negotiations continue between House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said this week that the U.S. could run out of money as soon as June 1st, and that has both markets and ratings agencies more than a little worried. And the whistleblower in the Hunter Biden investigation went public this week. He's an IRS agent alleging irregularities by the Department of Justice. Republicans say the circle is tightening on the Biden family's business dealings, while Democrats say it's all just a political hit job by the GOP. Joining me to talk about all this are Real Clear Politics president and co-founder Tom Bevin, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and White House correspondent Phil Wegman. So, Phil, you had the lead piece yesterday on RCP dealing with the DeSantis announcement. It was held on Twitter, and that became as much part of the story as the event itself. So what happened? And overall, did DeSantis get what he wanted out of this unorthodox approach? The DeSantis campaign insists that they got everything that they wanted. And their argument is that not only did the Florida governor break the Internet, but he raised a bucket of cash. They reported that they uh, brought in one million dollars in fundraising within an hour. But look, there's no objective way to look at this, to listen to that disorganized and sometimes pretty chaotic Twitter live stream between DeSantis and um, a number of his supporters and say that it was a success. We didn't even get to see the candidate. And more than that, um, DeSantis didn't get to speak for 25 minutes after schedule uh, because the Twitter space kept crashing. They're trying to make the most of it, but it was underwhelming to say the least. Tom, what did you make of it? Obviously, it's not great. You know, but I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like, is this going to affect the race in any way? I doubt it. I mean, you know, it's like technical difficulties. People like, like we were just trying to get on our podcast and we had, you know, (laughs) stuff happens. I just don't think, look, on one hand, I think, I think there are two lessons. One is, you know, for a guy who, who, if you're one of your rationales is I'm super competent dude. Okay. And the other guy's like not competent then you have to be competent and you can't afford when you, when you are not competent or incompetent, then that becomes a story. That's number one. I think the other thing that DeSantis uh, needs to recognize, and this has been part of the landscape for a few weeks now, but whenever he makes a mistake, okay, he's going to get it from all the media, all the Democrats and the Republicans, right? Donald Trump was relentless in his criticism of DeSantis last night, the next day all sorts of mockery and videos and all that stuff. So whenever DeSantis has a misstep of any kind, he's he's not going to get a, a fair shake from the New York Times, which called it like a fiasco. I mean, they blew it up into this, you know, giant thing. He, he's not going to get any breaks from from the sort of liberal mainstream press, but he's also not going to get a break from from Donald Trump and Nikki Haley and and his other competitors. So he needs to, I think, run a a clean campaign and not have as many missteps because to the extent that he continues to have missteps, large or small, they are going to be uh, they're going to be part of the campaign. But at the end of the day, when we look back, you know, when the votes taken in 
January, you know, eight months from now in Iowa, or is anyone going to say, oh, well, you know, he launched his campaign and it was a disaster and that's part of the part of the reason he failed? No. Well, Carl, this was Roger Kimball uh, writing The Spectator. He said, uh, those who stayed were treated to an off-the-rack political speech that could have been written by chat GPT, <laughs> all delivered in a nasal deadpan as if by a preacher intoning a prayer over a dead muskrat's grave. <laughs> lovely prose. I like colorful. it. And to Tom's point, it does seem like all knives are out for DeSantis. Nikki Haley called him an echo of Trump. Uh, that was her way of attacking him. So is Tom right? Well, oh, Tom is right. Um, not only is the press against this guy, you know, you started seeing stories. You, you go to any, Washington, any dinner party in Washington, people say, DeSantis is more dangerous than Trump. And people would all nod their heads and <laughs> rub their hands together and reach for their Chablis. How do you figure he's more dangerous? You say to your friend who's a good Bernie Sanders liberal who would never actually vote for Bernie Sanders because it would hurt their taxes. Well, he's just like Trump, but he's smart. And so if you're, if you, if you're not on your sixth beer, you say, well, wait a minute. So then he's nothing like Trump. And cause you've been telling me for five years, Trump's stupid. I digress. The point that Tom's making is that this guy, the, the press is against him. They have been for years. Uh, they've, they've been building fire against him precisely because they think he's a pre- a threat to Joe Biden. The Democrats are going after him. Uh, the All the other candidates have to go after him because he's the number two to Trump. And there's Trump ridiculing him in ways that, as I said last week in the podcast, you know, poor Gaylord Parkinson, author of the 11th commandment, thou shalt speak ill of no fellow Republican, would turn in his grave because Trump just trashes other Republicans. So this guy has a lot going against him. And then you have conservatives like Roger Kimball who find him and, and Matt Lewis, who find DeSantis wanting in other ways. They don't think he's charismatic enough. They don't think he's articulate eloquent enough. What do you have going for him? Well, Phil alluded to it. He raised, he raised all this money. You have these big, these conservative donors who think that Trump's a loser in the general election, who are looking for an alternative. DeSantis wants to tap into that. He wants an inevitability that he'll run second to Trump. I'm doing air quotes there that our <laughs> listeners can't see. Until until he winnows out the field and then he can take Trump one on one. The problem is this: money's not enough in politics today, and it hasn't been for a while. You know, Phil Graham, nobody remembers him. He ran in the 1990s, raised plenty of money, Texas senator. Phil was the original candidate I wrote about that he's the dog food the dog won't eat. That's a marketing phrase that you know they put all the chemists in the room. They come up with this perfect dog food, but then the dogs just won't eat it. Nobody knows why. You can't interview a dog. You can't interview voters, but they're often no more articulate than dogs as to why they don't like one, why they like one candidate over another. Kamala Harris, a recent example. She had this amazing rollout, all this money. She was the Ron DeSantis, you know, for five years ago. She couldn't even make it to the starting gate. Money is not his problem. He's going to have plenty of money. The problem is, is he the candidate that people don't warm to? And if that's, if that's the case, I don't know that it is, but if that's the case, then these Republicans are looking for somebody other than Trump are going to quickly try, try to find an alternative. And that's what Nikki Haley and Tim Scott and, and Mike Pence even, they want to be they want to be the alternative. So in a sense, this race right now is shaping up. Trump's in first place. He's going to stay there for a while. The fight is over who gets to be the, the number two. And then does that person get to trick Trump one-on-one in time to win the nomination? And then there's two questions. First of all, can they beat Trump one-on-one? Last time, both John Kasich and 
uh, and uh, Ted Cruz thought if they could just get this guy one-on-one, they could beat him. There's no evidence that they could. And then the second thing is, even if they can, do they win the field out in time? So that that's how I see this thing shape it up. And that's the context for DeSantis. He's got a lot going against him because a lot of people are working against him. The, the other thing that I think is somewhat problematic. Tom, you're supposed to, you skip this part where you say, I agree with everything Carl said, but. I agree with everything Carl said. <laughs> now, the other problem is that I think DeSantis has to, he has to show some strength pretty quickly. And there was an Emerson poll that came out on Thursday morning that we had on the site uh, showing Donald Trump at 62% in Iowa and Ron DeSantis at 20%. Um, there are a couple other polls that have it closer than that. But, you know, DeSantis, he's going to have all this money. But as Carl said, I mean, Jeb Bush had tons of money, didn't do him anything. I mean, if he spends it by putting it into a ground game and actually getting voters in Iowa to, to the polls, that's different. If he spends it on, you know, attack ads trying to trying to beat down Trump, that's not going to probably do anything. The problem is that these other folks that have gotten the race, Tim Scott in particular, is also going to vie for that evangelical vote in Iowa and Nikki Haley to a certain degree as well. Um, they can't just sit around and wait till South Carolina. If Trump wins Iowa, New Hampshire, you know, South Carolina is going to be too little too late. So is Florida for Ron DeSantis. So they got to get out and they got to show strength early. He's already made two trips to Iowa. He's there. Uh, he's going to start his official campaign there on uh, Tuesday of next week. He's going to make four or five stops, and then he's going to go to New Hampshire the next day and South Carolina the next day. You know, voters in Iowa really uh, crave, I think, authenticity. Um, and you have all these candidates, you know, the Rick Santorums, the Mike Huckabees. They do the 99-county tour, you know, and they meet people. And, you know, can Ron DeSantis do that in a way? I mean, Interestingly enough, by the way, the only person who doesn't do that is Trump, who still manages to win all these votes in Iowa because he just flies in, has a rally, and you know everyone seems to be happy with that. He's sort of um, he's the exception to the rule of of how you how you win in Iowa. So we, you know the landscape is littered with all the folks who flew into Iowa to try and you know hobnob with farmers Rudy Giuliani, Fred Thompson, you know Scott Walker, Tim Pawlenty, and didn't make that kind of connection. Never got that. Uh, so we'll see, I mean, whether DeSantis is able to do that or not. And to Tom's point about DeSantis having to show strength early on, something that I was watching for last night and didn't see during the Twitter live stream or the Fox News interview that followed was not an affirmative case for why he should be the nominee. DeSantis managed to explain how what he's done in Florida is a ready-made blueprint for the rest of the nation. What DeSantis didn't do was mention Trump by name. He made a lot of implicit contrasts, but he didn't mention him by name. And that's why um, Real Clear Politics, we put the question to him, uh, what is he going to do to uh, differentiate himself with the former president? Is he going to argue that Trump should not be reelected? And DeSantis told us that Donald Trump has basically created the opportunity for him to draw that contrast, to criticize uh, Trump, because Trump is reaching back all the way to 2018 to an omnibus bill that DeSantis voted against. And the Trump team is is spinning that this shows that DeSantis voted against uh, the border wall. Well, in his remarks to us last night, uh, DeSantis also pointed back to, you know, uh, so many years ago and said, 
um, if you take a closer look, the uh, omnibus bill in question increased debt exponentially, and it also uh, would have only gotten a small amount of border wall funding in exchange uh, for amnesty. So for the very first time, not on his own, but instead when he was pressed by reporters, uh, DeSantis went on the offense against Trump and labeled him the candidate of omnibus spending and amnesty. Well, I want to leave one final thought on this, Andy, and that is where you started this thing. Does does the technology glitch matter? Tom, Tom makes Tom makes a good point there. But you know, but there, there's going to be so much going on in this campaign that you know by eight months from now we'll be thinking of it. We might have forgotten that, but but it wasn't. But it, these things don't always not matter. You know, George McGovern, uh, Andy, you and I are probably the only people on this podcast. Remember this? We were in school at the time, but you know, McGovern didn't give his uh, acceptance speech at the Democratic convention in 1972 to like two in the morning. You know, I and because they had a series of of problems. This is a technological glitch, but it's done by a guy, Elon Musk. You know, who who invented the electric car and shot himself into space, and you really expected better. You know, Tom used this phrase: "If you're campaigning on competence." Well, you better be competent. I'm sure that you know the gleeful people at the New York Times loved it, and the, the media could say, "Oh, this terrible rollout." All right, you don't want to go overboard with it, but it, it wasn't nothing. People, some people are out there looking at these candidates, and they, they have open minds, and they say, "Well, if you can't run your own announcement speech, how are you going to run the country?" It's a fair question. I, I take issue really quickly with this idea that <laughs> I don't remember Mr. McGovern. I've read about him. I know all about acid, amnesty, and abortion as I sit behind a portrait of, uh, of Bob Novak. Go ahead. I just want to add one thing. So I was talking to John McIntyre uh, yesterday morning. Phil mentioned they're into this back and forth over you know, the omnibus and amnesty. John made a good point. I said, because I, I asked him, I said, well, you know, if you were advising DeSantis, how would you advise him to handle Trump? He said, he shouldn't attack him. He should just say Trump's great. And I wouldn't be governor without Trump because that is actually true, but that he he shouldn't attack him. He should just simply say, look, because the way Trump's been treated by the media, because of the way things have gone, he's just not electable. And that's a shame, but I am electable. And if Republicans want to win in a general election, then they need to consider voting for me. Getting into a, a, a shouting match or any sort of back and forth with Donald Trump over policy on who did what, when he's going to lose, he's going to lose that. And Trump's going to just beat the living crap out of him. But it's, it's sort of counterintuitive. It's like Trump's going to attack me. And then I have to say, he's great. Like that's not a normal, natural thing. You want to fight back. Uh, and, but everybody who's fought back against Trump has, has lost. And it's, re- it's going to be really difficult for DeSantis to win over Trump voters, which he needs without alienating them. It shouldn't be an alien concept to DeSantis. He, he's, a, he's a practicing Christian. Phil went to Hillsdale College. What was the question, Phil? How, Lord, how many times should I turn the other cheek? Seven times? I say to you, seven times seven. Seventy-seven <laughs> times. So DeSantis may have to turn his other cheek to Trump 70 times between now and July 4th. To Tom's point about the electability argument, DeSantis did do some of this in the run-up to his announcement during his book tour. He wasn't going after Trump. He saw that his answer to the Manhattan District Attorney's indictment of Trump, where he referenced uh, porn star Stormy Daniels, did not go over well. And so I think that's why there has been a lot of hesitancy with the governor to go after Trump and 
you know, I think it is, it is telling, you know, that he didn't quite go after the former president unless um, he, he was pressed. And in his answer, it was clear that he wasn't going after him proactively. He was responding to attacks. So I think that this is an ongoing question that everyone from DeSantis to Haley to Scott uh, to Pence is trying to figure out how do they potentially um, critique Donald Trump without alienating the Trump base. And some of these consultants for all of the huge salaries they command are arriving at the conclusion that, yeah, maybe it's not worth getting into the mud with the guy who made his career in the mud and has has won there and dispatched uh, lesser candidates there before. Well, we have to move on, but I'll make one last point, which is that, and I hate to disagree with John McIntyre on anything, uh, but I think the unelectability argument is getting tougher and tougher to make given the strength of Trump in the polls. I'm not sure that that's going to be convincing, uh, at least through the summer. We'll see. Anyway, we've reached a point in the podcast. This is a point uh, I've tried to avoid, which is that we have to talk about the debt ceiling. It's personally my least favorite topic. <sighs> it is the professional wrestling of politics. It's always seems it's a manufactured drama, highly scripted parts for everyone involved. But occasionally, reality intrudes, and we may have one of those situations now. One of the big credit rating agencies put the U.S. on what it's called a ratings negative watch. That's the precursor to a downgrade. So, Carl, is it time to take this seriously? Well, it's time to take the national debt seriously. So let's start with that. Let's, you know, we, we talk about the, the, the politics of the issue. The U.S. Treasury Department, uh, Andy, in the first quarter of 2022, paid $200 billion in interest payments on the national debt. It's no longer a moral issue. It's a practical, practical issue. If we get to spending more on interest payments on the debt than we do on defense spending. On I, I hear you, Carl, and I, I understand that. But these are obligations that we made. Give it a minute, though, Andy. Okay. I'm trying to explain to you why I think the politics has changed. Because the debt has just, it's become, it, it, you know, Reagan used to, Ronald Reagan used to compare it to household income. All right. And people got that. Well, now we're at the point where our, our interest on our credit cards is more than our mortgage payment. The point is, is that this is sunk in a way it never has before. The polling's never been where it is before. Kevin McCarthy is playing hardball, uh, the Speaker of the House, with the, with the Democratic administration because the crazies on his right are pushing him and forcing him to do it. But also, he's comfortable doing it because the polling's on his side. Americans don't understand why in a, in a time of peace and prosperity, relative prosperity, peace, there's no pandemic. We still even have deficit spending in this country, let alone annual deficits ranging between, you know, 400 billion and a trillion dollars every year for no reason at all, other than Congress is pandering the voters. Congress is responsible for this debt, not the Biden administration. You know, I don't know why Biden acts like it's his problem. He ought to say, yeah, Congress, you, you caused this problem, fix it. Well, that's what Corrine Jean-Pierre says from the podium every single day. Yeah. But she also said, we're not, we don't negotiate. Then we said, as I've always said, we're going to negotiate. She's a little bit, Phil covers her. Let's stay away from her. She's not the issue. (laughs) The issue is the politics on this have changed, Andy. And people like you and I, who our eyes used to glaze over this because it was all performative art. It's, you know, these government shutdowns, which each side tried to leverage the other. This time, the American people have reached a different point. They seem to be a different point where they understand we're spending too much money. And the reason that is, and our polling for Real Clear Opinion Research showed this a few weeks ago, and a CNN poll that came out uh, the other day confirmed it, is that people are tying it to inflation. They think that this is inflationary. To just continue to spend unlimited sums 
without cutting spending will continue to cause the inflation that is causing everyday Americans pain at the gas pump, you know, their mortgages, et cetera. And, and that didn't exist the last time we went through this. And so that I think is what has fundamentally altered the politics of this. And we'll see if they, they get it done. Yeah. So Phil, speaking of the politics of this, the Democrats seem to be worried that Biden may actually do something here and God forbid they actually compromise. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Hold it, Andy. Uh, for our listeners, Andy's the producer. He's a damn good producer. He sends us links. We have to read up on this. We don't just go on there and wing it like Tom and I do on Tuesdays. No, <laughs> we we prepare for this show. And Andy sent us a clip, a New York, uh, a Washington Post story saying the Democrats are mad at Biden because he's not standing up to the Republicans. And the the source in the Washington Post story was Sheila Jackson Lee. Yeah, I'm not I'm not kidding you. She said. In a caucus meeting, never reported before, said the Washington Post, that they'd like Biden to give a, nas- a speech on this, a primetime speech. So she, can, she, she, Sheila Jackson Lee, can dress in a red dress, be there in the aisle as she has been for 30 years for every president, Republican, Democrat, grab Biden's thing, hug him, shake his hand in the airtime. <laughs> That, All I'm right. sorry, Andy, that is wow. not a good clip you sent us. Now, wait a sec. Phil, Phil, back me up here, will you? Well, there, there is a little bit of congressional Democrat consternation. Uh, I don't <laughs> think it's just Representative Sheila Jackson Lee. Um, there's reporting from CNN where, um, you know, members are growing a little bit frustrated uh, that Biden is not out there counter-programming the daily press conference that we hear from Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who is basically holding court with reporters on Capitol Hill, explaining why uh, the president needs to acquiesce to House GOP. Um, Biden is pretty good at these kinds of negotiations, even though, um, as we've noted previously, this debt ceiling negotiation seems to be a little bit different because independents are backing Kevin McCarthy and because Kevin McCarthy has kept uh, the Republican conference together. But um, for anyone who expects Joe Biden to be out there negotiating in the press every day, they're going to be disappointed. I mean, even this morning, Corinne uh, Jean-Pierre told reporters who who wanted to know if, if the president would cancel his Memorial Day uh, weekend plans that no, he can be president from anywhere. Uh, he can sign a bill from anywhere. And that his MO as of now is to give the negotiators time and space to come up with a deal. I think that, you know, the White House has made their calculations. They know that someone is going to get blamed. They are perhaps a, a little bit nervous, but they're not not as nervous as some of these voices um, on Capitol Hill just yet. And I think that um, when it's more than just Sheila Jackson Lee and perhaps when um you know, Minority Leader Jeffries uh, demands that Democrats stay in town and skip the the holiday weekend. Then, then maybe there will be uh, more consternation. But as of now, I, I mean, I think Biden is going to continue to stay in the West Wing uh, shadows and and wait for the moment where he has to come out and actually put um, pen to paper and make a deal official. Well, also, you know, Biden Biden got himself in trouble early on, and I think one of the reasons he's in all seriousness, that he's keeping a lower profile. He he was kind of sneered at the Republicans. So you don't have a plan. Well, they passed a plan. He didn't think they could do it. The plan has some things that Democrats would never agree to, policy changes. But it also has uh, something that you'd think everybody would want, which is clawbacks on unspent coronavirus pandemic money. So there is room for a negotiation. And 
you know, this is not, this shouldn't shock us. Phil, you mentioned this when Barack Obama had to deal with the Republicans on the debt ceiling, he sent up a Democrat who knew how to negotiate and it was vice president Joe Biden. So Biden's not afraid of negotiating. And this idea that you shouldn't negotiate on the debt ceiling is ahistorical and, and also stupid. So there's going to be some negotiations, but there's some, there are some things in the Republican bill that passed the House that Biden's going to agree to. There are certain Democrats who don't want to agree to anything the Republicans have passed. Well, I think the president understands that's not how you're going to get a deal. So I think he is prepared to negotiate and compromise, as every other president has, even even while they're doing government shutdowns and blaming the other side. A key distinction here also that is really fascinating is that the last time Joe Biden stepped in to avoid a default and cut a deal with congressional uh, leaders, who was he negotiating with? It was then minority leader Mitch McConnell. This time, McConnell has said, no, no, no. I'm not bailing you out. There are only two people who can negotiate. It's the Speaker of the House and the President. He's backing McCarthy up, and he's not offering a exit ramp. He's saying, House Republicans are unified. Go deal with them. Tom, is McCarthy going to emerge from this thing the winner? And um, I hate to I, I hate to be in a position where I have to defend the reporting by the Post, but I think there's more to that that story. And and I do think that part of it is that this it fits into this narrative of Biden being sort of passive and out of touch, that McCarthy is sort of out there every night talking this up and the White House is sort of sitting back. And maybe, maybe that's just good strategy, but it also looks like maybe he just doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> right. It's like people used to say about Trump, like he's playing five-dimensional chess. I'm like, no, nah, I don't think so. I think he's just sitting there with his phone in his hand. It's 2 a.m. on a Saturday and he tweets whatever pops into his head, right? Same thing with Biden. Uh, I'm not sure Joe's playing five-dimensional chess here, but we'll see. I mean, I do think McCarthy's in a a good position. He's in a stronger position than I think a lot of people expected him to be at this point. And again, with public opinion sort of on his side, you have to expect that something's going to get done. Both sides don't want to see what's on the other side of the abyss. Everyone says it's a catastrophe. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But that's the only thing preventing us from going there is the unknown and what could potentially be there. So, so we'll see. I'm just shocked, Andy, that that your your disdain for for the debt ceiling is it's like inverse proportion to your love of infrastructure. Just- <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, Tom. Hey, can let me throw an idea out there though. I. Is it possible that the debt ceiling default is like Y2K <laughs> and that nothing would happen? Yes, it's possible. It's possible, but I am convinced we will, and have always been convinced that we will never find out because it's just too terrible to think of. And they will always come to some sort of agreement at the last minute. And it is professional wrestling. Everyone, including the markets, have got to play their part. And at the end of the day, we somehow muddle through. But let's talk about something else. Uh, which is the Hunter Biden investigation. It continues. Um, This week, a whistleblower at the IRS stepped forward. We had heard about this guy. He did an interview with CBS. His name is Gary Shapley. He's a 14-year veteran of the agency. He was in charge of the investigation. And this is what he told CBS. He said, when I took control of this particular investigation, I immediately saw a deviation from the normal process. It was way outside the norm of what I've experienced in the past. So he's scheduled to appear before the House Ways and Means Committee today. It's closed session, so we won't know exactly what happens. But Tom, this investigation, it's been going on for three years. 
Still no charges. Are we getting close? Is something going to happen here? Maybe. I don't know. You know, who knows? Listen, there are two things that are interesting to me about this. Number one, it was CBS that did the reporting on this, not some, you know, right-wing outlet. I think that's significant. The other thing is the contrast with another story that was in a right-wing outlet this morning, the Washington Times, and I tweeted about it uh, yesterday morning, that, you know, you have, here you have an allegation that from a, again, 14-year veteran of the IRS that this case had all sorts of deviations from the norm and they were basically, quote unquote, slow walking it, right? And not pursuing it in sort of the normal, traditional fashion. The story in the Washington Times was that the IRS worked overtime, worked overtime to pursue a case against Matt Taibbi, the journalist who unveiled the, you know, the Twitter files and all that. Remember, as he was testifying before Congress, on the day he was testifying before Congress, IRS agents were showing up at his house. And all of this happened very rapidly. We learned that I think the initial letter happened in December. Um, This was from a 2018 tax filing. So it had been dormant all this time. And suddenly it just like, boom, kicked into gear. They were hot and heavy to get this thing done. When you have an agency of the US government that is slow walking one investigation and working overtime in another investigation, purely based on the political preferences and because one was the president's son and the other one was a journalist who was revealing information that, you know, the president and his party didn't like, didn't agree with whatever. That is a freaking problem. I mean, that is textbook definition of politicization and weaponization of the government against citizens. It's disturbing. It should not happen, should never happen. And we're seeing more and more evidence, not just at the IRS, but across the government, all these agencies that wield massive amounts of power over everyday citizens, that they are not operating apolitically. They are not operating uh, objectively. There is bias that is being projected onto these different cases. That should have every American sitting up in their chairs and and figuring out what we need to do about that, whether it's dismantling these agencies, defunding them, you know, whatever having investigations to try and somehow get them back to a position where they need to be, which is they're, they're outside of the political spectrum, right? Should never be involved in politics. Phil, what did you make of it? Well, the White House put out a memo arguing that House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer essentially gave up the game when he suggested that all of these investigations were going to be politically costly for the administration. And my response to that is, and so, I mean, if we look at the way that this entire system of government is set up, it is to balance the self-interest of individual politicians and get them to govern in accordance with what is in the best interest of the American people. Yes, there is this danger uh, of showing that there are two uh, sets of rules here for the politically connected and then those who are not. That is absolutely textbook politicization. At the same time, there's a worry that if House Republicans go too hard and they are only out um, not for good government purposes, but instead to ding the president, that um, the independent voters might tune this out, that they might not pay attention. And I think that perhaps, um, you know, on the Hill, Republicans might take that um, warning a little bit more seriously if they hadn't seen uh, nonstop investigations of the previous president for the last four years. So 
I, I think that this is just pedal to the metal uh, at, at this point. Um, you know, both sides are going to see their opportunities and take them when they can. Carl, can't two things be true at the same time? One, that this is a bad thing and it's bad politics for the White House. And I, I want to ask you about something specific. Comer is going to be meeting with Christopher Wray uh, next week, apparently. And this is about the Bidens. And what prompted this was this document that Comer wants from the FBI. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but we learned a little bit more about the document. And this came from CNN. So to Tom's point, um, it's not from some right-wing source, but Comer specified that the form he's looking for, it's called an FD-1023. It's dated June 30th, 2020. And he says it includes information that a foreign national allegedly paid $5 million and got some desired policy income, as they say. Um, I've done a little reporting on this, which I haven't shared with our readers yet because it it wasn't wasn't it wasn't ready, and I don't have a definitive answer, Andy. But I'll talk about it on, on our podcast. The FBI, what they're saying privately is that this uh, person who made this allegation is not credible, and the, the implication is that he has he or she has uh, mental issues, and that they don't want to embarrass this person, they don't want to embarrass the agency, they don't want to just release raw intelligence, you know, the way they did with this stupid steel dossier. Now you can argue that it's double standard or you can argue that they learned their lesson. Interesting. That's good reporting. Thank you. As a student of history though, you you, you remember that, you know, the Soviets used to routinely call say dissidents were insane and were, were confined them literally in mental hospitals. So you want to be careful with that. You want to be careful to accept that. I think what Representative Comer is doing, meeting with Christopher A, the FBI director privately to, to hash this out is the right thing. In terms of the larger question, if there are tax allegations against Hunter Biden, and it's not beyond the realm of possibility, the person who took up with his uh, brother's widow while knocking up a stripper in Alabama, while doing cocaine and all the things and taking money from the Ukrainians, all the things Hunter Biden did that forgot or fraudulently or whatever you want to say, filed tax returns that didn't pass muster. That's not a stretch. And this allegation by the IRS agent that it was a deviation from the normal process, I would hope it would be a deviation from the normal process. I would hope that government bureaucrats, unelected government bureaucrats with basically the tenure of a Harvard professor, would be careful in political tinged investigations and would slow walk it. I actually think that's what they should do. The problem is, is that that's certainly not what they did with Paul Manafort or Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former campaign manager and lawyer, respectively. They were aggressively went after them. And so if you're a conservative or a Republican voter who thinks that the FBI and the Justice Department has been weaponized, this is very concerning, that Hunter Biden's being treated differently. Now, I think in any case where there's a political dimension, I think they should be careful. I think they should go slow. The question is, why are they going slow now and they didn't before? Can I just pop in to say, not to denigrate Carl's sources, I'm sure they're impeccable, but why is there any reason, any reason to believe anything the FBI says now? Tom, wait a minute. That's a jujitsu trick you've done on me because I've never believed the word the FBI said in 50 years. And I'm on record. I'm on record with that. I mean, the way that the, way that the FBI treated these whistleblowers that testified before the uh, Jim George committee in the House the other day, they alleged that they weren't whistleblowers and that they were sympathetic to January 6th, et cetera, et cetera. And you hear the stories of the guys and the way that they've been treated by the agency and, and a lot. I mean, it just. Well, and, and wait, wait, and Tom, is the, to your point, to your problem. point, Tom, 
I mean, to, to the broader point here. So Matt, so the IRS opens an investigation of Matt Taibbi on Saturday, Christmas Eve, or the day before Christmas Eve, Saturday, Christmas Eve, Saturday, Christmas Eve, three weeks after the Twitter files come out. And they say, well, but it was, we, we thought he was the victim of identity theft and we sent letters to him. And, he, and both he and his lawyers said, well, we never got those letters. So this was what, by the way, Watergate really got supercharged when it became revealed that Richard Nixon, the president of the United States, had tried to exert pressure on the IRS to audit his enemies. Now this is like what what's de rigueur. This is an accepted weapon now of politics. This is politics as usual. That's concerning too. Well, Phil, I'm going to give you the last word this week, which is, and Mike, I'm going to let you say whatever you're going to say, but then I want you to answer my question, which is scale of one to 10. I'm going to go back to the old uh, McLaughlin group. A scale of one to 10. How worried is the White House about this? But Say your piece and then give Before me Before he answers, I just want to, I'm, I'm filing a protest for this entire <laughs> podcast because I didn't get the first word and I'm not getting the last word. This is a breach of protocol and decorum. So go ahead, Phil. On a scale of one to 10, the White House is concerned about debt ceiling negotiations, probably about a seven. They're in control, but they see the warning signs. They know that someone has to get blamed and that not everyone is going to get what they want. They're, uh, they're concerned. Were you going to say something about Biden too? Because otherwise, I'm going to have to give Tom the last word. I'm not going to say anything about Biden and the uh, IRS. I'm not going to say anything about the IRS. I don't want to get audited. You're a pretty smart, good call. Tom, what do you think? I have no last words. Oh, my God. Carl, you've got a last word, I'm sure. It's Memorial Day. Yeah, I do have a last word. We're going into a three-day weekend. We have more of them than we used to in this country, but that's good because by the time I retire, I hope we have a four-day work week. But it's a good time to remember all of the men and women who sacrificed their lives for this country, who have been wounded in defense of this country, who if they weren't didn't die, weren't killed or, or wounded, but still gave of their life, gave of their, their careers, gave their baseball careers like Willie Mays and Ted Williams, gave, gave, went away from their families for extended period of time, went in the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, made one-fourth as much money as they would have made, and did it all for love of country, protected our freedoms, our ability on this podcast to criticize a president, to criticize every presidential candidate that we can think of, and to talk about Ameri- a, a p- public policy in an unfettered and uncensored way. To all of those people, I think we owe a debt of gratitude, and I'd like to say thank you. Let's leave it there. I want to thank Phil Wegman, Carl Cannon, Tom Bevan. As Carl says, have a great Memorial Day uh, weekend. It's an opportunity. As- Carl points out, to remember those who gave their lives for our freedoms, one of which, of course, is uh, freedom of speech, uh, which we talk about quite a bit on this podcast. And in that light, I urge you to go to Real Clear Politics, read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. You'll be partaking in a proud American tradition and one very much in keeping with this weekend's holiday. Thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.